Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 1, Chapters 3, 4, and 5 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 1, read by Jeff Breitman. Chapter 3 The Leech There are no snakes on the island of Hibernia. St. Patrick drove them away. The same was true of my destination, Iona. In that case, St. Columba had purged them. But I had read of serpents in the Bible and elsewhere, and dreamt of them sometimes. I dreamt that as the ink flowed out of my pen, it turned into a long, writhing black snake on the page, and it slithered off the vellum, slid off the table and out through a hole in the wall, taking all the letters with it. Waken with a start, my heart beat fast. And it will be worth it, this sacrifice? Deidre had asked. The question echoed in the bare hut, which seemed especially small. I took some deep breaths, lying still, damp with sweat. I'd been feverish in the night. I put my hand under my arm to feel the lump again, the same sort of lump that Una told me our mother complained of the year before dying. It was the same, smooth and the size of a pebble, I rose and checked the small leather bag that hung on the peg to see that it still held my precious objects, as if the dream had taken them away. The parchment would be ready. I hurried out. Next to the house, Deidre was fulling cloths of wool, stepping on the woven lengths barefoot in the vat of cloudy urine. She was already accustomed to the smell and sang a little chant to herself. Good morning. Have I been long dreaming? I asked, looking at the sky. The sun was still low over the hill. The cross on the hill was black before the sunrise. Not so long. Father rose early, so I joined him. I prefer to fool the wool early before the sun bakes the pea. Doesn't smell quite as bad. Good idea. Where is he now? He went to drive some calves to Limar's new base client with Kevin. That's a boy's job. I think he wanted to be off for a little while. I'm done. Will you help me out? I lifted her out of the vat. Shall we hang it up? In a moment. I just need to fetch a little water. I picked up a small pail nearby and went to the stream. Limar's younger sister Maeve approached as I dipped the water. So you leave soon? she asked. I, she nodded, the brisk nod natural to her bony jaw and sharp chin. She had a quickness like a ferret. It isn't exactly the distance I think of. It's hard to say. I looked in her face. 
Her jaw and chin were strong, but her round blue eyes were deep and emotional, tinged with fear, perhaps from growing up with Limar as a brother. She continued, You'll walk a long way, but it's not the distance. She sighed and rubbed her face, then put her hands on her hips and spoke with difficulty. This is the present here, and you'll go off into the future, and we will be the past to you. We will still be here. I will yet exist, but I and we will be the past. And when you wake in the monastery, we will be a dream you woke from. We will just be a dream, and you will wake and be broken from the past, like a dam in the river. She lowered her head and looked at me searchingly with her keen eyes. This was a little different from what I was expecting, and I blinked, regarding her, thinking about this time, like a glistening river winding through the landscape, which emptied into the ocean that was eternity. We all end up in the same place, I said. I should have expected that. What do you want me to say? I'll remember you. All of you, of course. I don't ask to be remembered. The dead are for remembering. She clenched her fists. In the distance came Limar's voice, shouting at his father. If you married me, that would have solved your problems, she said, meaning the cattle. Her jaw tensed at the sound of her brother's voice. I looked into her eyes and saw the fear. I could have taken her away from Limar, and I would have been a kind husband. Who knew what man Limar would make her marry? I'm sorry, I said. She raised her jutting chin, resolved. You will remember ghosts, a shadow, but I will go on. I will yet exist. She turned and walked away. I remained standing there, watching her straight back, her straight neck. It would have been interesting to marry her. Daedra skipped down the hill. Mother says to come and eat, but she settled on a rock and flung her arms out, leaning back on her hands. Was that Maeve? I thought I heard her voice. Yes. Now she'll have the cattle and the status without marrying you. Daedra spoke lightly and tilted her head toward the warming sun. She'll be a fine, high-born wife to someone now. It's not that many cattle, I said. It's enough. It's a good start. Limar was proud enough before. Now he'll be insufferable. He'll send away to Gaul for a glass window like an abbot. Are there glass windows where you're going? We had no glass windows on the farm. Aye, there are a few in the church. What is the church like? she asked. Well, it has a stone foundation and painted walls. In the day, it's very cool inside, like a refreshing drink for your soul, with its windows of sea-green glass. At night, there are candles that 
shimmer like a pond in moonlight, and the light shimmers with the vibration of a hundred men chanting. The sound swells in waves, rising and falling, and it lifts your soul. After all these years, you remember the chanting? All the time. What else is it like there? I sat beside her. There are mountain ash trees with their orange berries. As Isidore says, ash trees grow in harsh places. You quote Isidore as if he were an old friend. The author of a book is like a friend. She cocked her head and spoke out of the side of her mouth. Moses wrote the Old Testament, but I have a hard time imagining him as a friend. More wine, Moses? Fancy a game of knuckle bones, Moses? You are wicked, I said, bursting into laughter. She laughed. Do, do monks laugh? Of course we laugh. Anyone who looks forward to heaven can laugh at the queerness of the world. Her laughter ended in a sigh. I find it so hard to believe you'll be really happy. I paused and spoke hesitantly. Happiness isn't the goal. I don't know if I believe you. A kind of happiness? I was struck with how much older she had lately become, her long limbs outstretched on the rock. You contradict me. I only seek to know why, but I want to believe you. There is something you seek. I don't want you to leave feeling badly. I want to know and believe it will be worth it. I want to have faith it will be, for your sake and for ours, for mine, for my heart's peace. The rock, stained red with blood from the hides, was cold and hard under me, and the chill rose up my back. I have spoiled you, allowing you to question me. She leaned forward and grasped my foot. I put my hand over hers. I only want to know you will be happy. What if you are mistaken? You have one chance. You will take your vow and you cannot return. How are you sure? I stroked her freckled hand. Is it worth this sacrifice? If I arrive, and it seems that I was wrong, then I was not the man I thought I was, and I will have to become that man. I recalled Dermot's words. Perhaps in the monastery you will learn to love, for you love none of us. The rising sun caught my eyes and blinded me for a moment. Una called from the house. I said, You wanted to know what happiness is to me. Tonight, I will share with you something of my happiness there, my happiest memory and what I look forward to. I took Daedra's hand and pulled her up. At the house, Una said, Daedra, go in and pour the mash while we hang the wool. Una and I pulled the wool out of the vat, holding it up to drip off.
Una's muscles rippled under her sleeves. We draped the wool over the branches of a low tree, and she started to sing. Please don't. It makes my heart sore, I said. Una looked at me startled. You so rarely mention her. Sometimes I think you have forgotten. I remember her singing most of all. Her gentle spirit. She thought fine things were meant for you. Because your spirit was gentle. Too gentle, Una said. I took her hand, her fingers strong in my grasp. You look like her, with your black hair and eyes. I do remember. I looked into her face. The lines around her eyes told of a life of care and hard work. Early mornings stoking the fire, afternoons squinting at needlework. When she died, your name was on her lips. She thought you safe in the monastery, away from all his cruelty. When he sent for you to come back, I was so glad to see you again, but afraid the sacrifice had been for nothing. Now, I don't know what to think. Think I am finishing the journey I started. But do you feel anything? she asked. Of course. You have tried not to. All these years, knowing you would leave, you have tried to forget us even as we stood before you. I stared at her. I couldn't speak for a few moments. You will never be dead to me. Not ever. I'm not sure what it's for going now. Now that he can't touch you. I know you feel you must, but I'm not sure why. Why it is so certain you must go. Only that I must. What do you need that we can't provide? I struggled to answer. That is the essence of it. That what I need, this life can't give to me. She leaned into me and suddenly spoke in a fast whisper, as if needing to get the words out before she changed her mind. I have a confession to make. When you left as a boy, I made a charm of a bit of an old belt of yours and a feather you once cherished, bound with my spit and some mud, and I buried it under the threshold, and I made an incantation for you to some day return. When you did, I was frightened. I didn't know if I had made things happen, and if so, if I had made a mistake. And I vowed to be a mother to you and protect you, though by then you are nearly grown, and I think we took turns protecting each other. I held her, my eyes veiled by her black hair. There are more important things in the world to wish for than for me to be here. She softly butted her head against my shoulder. It is because you think that that I know I have lost you. She pulled the bronze ring off her finger. Will you take this? It was an old ring that had found its way into the family from Rome long ago, incised with a cross. 
I held it in my hand, remembering it on my mother's finger. No, I prefer to take no remembrance. If I live in your heart, and you in mine, no distance between us will matter. I slid it back onto her finger, her hand strong, like our mother's hand. Should I have never willed you back? she asked. It was no magic, only the will of God. I have no regret. I'm glad that I knew you for these years. But conjure no more. I am not coming back. As Una pulled herself from my arms, wiping tears off the back of her hand, something moved in the distance that startled me. At the top of the hill, a strange man had stopped under the cross. The man had appeared suddenly from nowhere, a tall man dressed in rough clothes, his face shaded by his hood. As his arms were outstretched in the gesture of prayer, I didn't call out to him. Una saw me stare and turned to look. She fell back against me. This man is no good, she whispered. Why do you say that? I don't know. She put her hand to her mouth. The man brought his hands together and caught sight of us. He came down to the gate of the wall. Good morrow, the man said. Now one could see he was old, with a neatly trimmed grey beard and long grey hair. He had small black eyes above a large hooked nose, like a bird of prey. When he spoke, his voice had a surprising low softness, a coo. My name is Ultan, and I travel as a leech and an interpreter of dreams. I've no land left, so I make my way as best I can. Una was pale, anxiously holding my hand. Her own was cold. Welcome, Ultan. I'm Kanochtoch, and this is my elder sister, Una. Ultan stood before the gate and gestured to Una, waiting for her invitation. He seemed to sense her disapproval. Una put her hand on the latch and paused. The question of whether she would admit him hung in the air while she took some deep breaths, staring up at the cross above us. Though I felt no harm in welcoming the stranger, I felt the weight of her concern and didn't rush her. A red squirrel, Daedra's pet she named Augustine, skittered along the wall toward us. Ultan held out his hand and Augustine sniffed it eagerly. The squirrel put his paw into Ultan's hand as if to shake it and the stranger laughed a deep, echoing laugh. Augustine chattered in response. Una scooped up the squirrel in her arms. I think there is little work for a doctor here, Una said. But you are welcome to a meal. We must be kind to strangers. She opened the latch, setting Augustine on the wall. Ultan's smile was bright. You are kind. Inside, Daedra had spooned the mash into three wooden bowls. We have a guest, Una said. 
Please bring another ball. Deidre, this is Olten. Deidre is my daughter. Good day to you, Deidre said. You are without sight? He asked. Almost. Let me see. Could we have a candle? I lit a candle from the fire and brought it close. Ultan put his hands around Daedra's face and tilted her head back. Roll your eyes up and down for me, he said in a soft voice. He examined her. It is strange. You have cataracts at such a young age. Is there hope for her? I asked. Ultan let her go. There is no cure. But I I can suggest that you keep your eyes shaded from the sun as much as possible. Wear your hood out of doors. Thank you, Deidre said. Have you travelled long? Not as long as I will. I have been on the roads these six months. I hope to go to Spain to see the relics of St. James. I am much in need of divine favour. My land was stolen from me because I have no sons. It's bad luck, Una said dryly. She didn't speak again as we ate. I put my hand on Olten's shoulder when we finished. I would speak with you further, if you will. Of course. I thank you for the delicious food. You're welcome, Daedra said when Una didn't reply. I led Olten back to my hut, leaving the door open to admit more light. We sat on the edge of my cot. I fear I am also in need of divine favor, I said. I pulled off my tunic and raised my arm to reveal the lump. Ultan felt it carefully, taking the measure of it with his fingers. How long ago did you notice it? Two months, I think. It's the only one? Yes. Ultan gave it a gentle press, then indicated I could lower my arms. There's no cure, is there? My mother had it. How old was she when she passed? About thirty. I'm twenty-four. Olten nodded, considering. It's hard to say. The end could be soon, I'm afraid. But it might be longer. You'll know when more lumps appear, perhaps in the groin. Sometimes the disease does pause in its course. I can tell I can be frank with you. It will end your life. God keep you. I had already decided I wanted to return to the monastery, where I lived for a time as a boy. I would recommend, if you have such a desire, not to put it off, he said. We stood up and recited the Lord's Prayer. I took him by the arm. Thank you. You're welcome to stay as long as you need to. Alton smiled, his black eyes glinting like coals. I fear your sister would prefer that I not. Oh, she's only upset because I'm leaving. 
She's not herself. Altan shrugged. Still, you have given me a meal, and I think that's all I should ask. But I would like to return. I'm concerned about her daughter. Won't you stay? Would you like to see our Psalter? Oh, that would be lovely. I put my tunic back on, looking forward to showing him the book. A shadow came through the open doorway. Una had come with a parcel wrapped in linen. I've wrapped some bread for you to take, and the linen will serve as a scarf for you, she said. I was embarrassed. The seemingly kind gesture was also a request that he leave. Ulten rose and took the bread. I thank you, Una. You are very kind. We stood awkwardly. Ulten picked up his walking stick, and we went outside together. He kissed us both on the cheek and slowly walked back up the hill, past the cross. I took Una by the elbow. Why did you dismiss him like that? There are others here who might have been of need of doctoring from a leech. Una's eyes were wide and fearful. I don't know. I just feel it. I hope you'll forgive me. She sank into my arms and we stood together, while in the distance we heard the man whistling as he walked away. Chapter 4 The Ink Earlier in the summer, when our father took to his bed, I walked to the monastery of Armagh with a bundle of fine wool. I entered the guesthouse and noticed the soft bed and abundance of costly beeswax candles. I asked to see the Seknap who came to the guesthouse. He was a compact, efficient man, fitted to his role of administrator, carrying a small ledger. He looked at me with darting eyes and spoke briskly. When I offered the wool to trade, he started to touch the bundle, then jerked his hand back as if it burned when I told him what I wanted. Gum, Arabic, and copperas are costly and precious, he said. It's fine wool. I seek to return to Iona where I spent my childhood, and I'd like to prepare a document to present to the abbot. He smoothed his hand over his tonsured scalp. Iona. St. Columba's fine old place, but I'm surprised you don't seek to come here. Iona is perhaps past its prime, though Patrick's star rises. Columbus is not eclipsed. I have come far. Will you trade? I only need a small bit of gum and copperas. He unrolled the wool on the bed. It was dyed pale blue, the color of purity, from Una's hand. Our sheep are the finest in Connacht. Feel how soft. Like your monastery, I thought noting again the feather pillows on the bed. He stroked it and nodded. 
It is still only wool for copper us. You've nothing else. No silver at all. I am on a holy mission. I tried not to let my impatience cut into my voice. I seek to be a scribe, to devote myself to a holy cause. Surely you would not discourage me or stand in my way for a few coins. He cleared his throat and frowned into his ledger. You only need but a little. You are perhaps preparing only a single page? Yes, that is all. One page should be enough. I don't have much time to tarry. My father is dying. He blushed, and I blush now at my rudeness. I rolled the smooth orange rocks of gum in my hand as they reflected the light before melting them by the fire. I uncorked the glass vial of copperus and sniffed the iron smell of the pale green salt. The dozen oak galls soaked in a basin of water. The liquid was brown and slightly foamy, the color of beef broth, and I strained it through the cheesecloth several times. When it was pure, I dropped in the grains of copperus. The moment they hit the water, spots of black blossomed and spread. In another moment, the ink was thoroughly black as I poured in a few drops of the melted gum. I put a clay jar at the top of the parchment to keep it from curling, and dipped the cut quill in the ink, drew a short stack of three lines, then measured that width with a pair of dividers. With that set, I walked the dividers down the page and pricked holes at each line and ruled it with a small piece of lead and a straight edge. Daedra spun wool thread where she sat on her cot, the wool winding down from her drop spindle. What's that scratching sound? I'm making lines on the page. Come here. She set down her work. This is what I wanted to show you. Here's the ink. I took her finger and lightly dipped it in the jar. She rubbed her thumb to her forefinger. It feels a little like blood, she sniffed. It smells like the earth when the rain hits it on a particularly hot day. I'm writing Deus. That starts with D, like your name. Here, feel it. I took her hand and put it over mine, and wrote. You pull the pen down toward you, pulling the letter out of the pen, and the ink glides on the page, smooth and shiny, the black, black ink on the page, white as snow. It's called ink because in Latin it means to burn. It burns into the page, and it's there forever. It turns brown after enough time, but it's there forever. Do you feel the perfection of it? It goes out into the world. The word of God will never be forgotten or changed. The book 
holds it inside, in this ink. Her hand was light on my wrist, not trying to guide me as I copied the psalm. The word of God. Isn't there a line in the book about, in the beginning was the word? Yes. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. It's like saying, first God had a thought. Everything begins with a thought. And right in these words, we can make our invisible thoughts, make them visible, to share them, and to fix them forever. Can you imagine having a thought and then being able to write it down, never to forget it, never to lose it? She raised her hand to her mouth in wonder. That seems fantastic when you put it that way. Men write their thoughts. They don't only copy the Psalms and the Gospels. Of course, you said something about Isidore earlier. There are many books. Our library was vast, with dozens of them. Excuse me, I can't talk and write at the same time. There was a pause as I filled out the page. Lord, hear my prayer. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me now that I am in distress. Turn your ear to me. When I call, answer me quickly. For my days vanish like smoke. My bones burn away as in a furnace. My days are like a lengthening shadow. I wither like the grass. Deidre went back to her drop spindle, winding up the length of thread. She said a prayer to St. Bridget and put the wool in its basket. And you want to scribe these books? What power it seems. I am only an instrument. When I was a boy, my teacher, Brother Luke, said I had the potential to be a master scribe. He said I was nimble. Who else was there? Old Brother Nithard would smile on my work. The Abbot Bresal nodded to me when we passed outside. He knew of me. I learned very quickly. The writing would be enough, but it can be even more splendid. Sometimes, for a special occasion, the monks create a wondrous thing. When I was young, I saw it, a book from the monastery of Lindisfarne, with a red leather cover bound over with silver and jewels. Inside there were pages with such intense colored inks, they're called illuminations, as if light were shining through them, like a colored glass window. She looked at me as if she could see me while I spoke, her face bright in the light of the dying embers. Oh, I long to see it. Tell me more. Make me see it. The designs were finely wrought, intricate like an embroidered cloth, woven, braided, spiraling patterns so that you could lose yourself in a trance. 
It is something that shines in my memory. It was beyond any druid's magic to create. It was the power of God's word made visible. I long to create such a book. That is what I have been waiting for these ten years. What I must do before I die. But you are not so old. I hesitated. Still, life is short. You must use your talent then. I kept my wax tablet and have practiced, the letters at least, these years since. Can I hold the parchment? I handed the rolled up parchment to her, and she held it carefully, tenderly. It is so light to hold such power. It is like a small bird. What if a bird could write its song? She burst into a laugh. It's madness, isn't it? But a miracle. There is something of madness in miracles. She held out her arm, balancing the scroll on her outstretched palm. Here, I took it back. She continued. I feel God's presence when I think of all that is beautiful for no reason. I barely see flowers now, but I often remember them and think they didn't have to be beautiful. The green hills and the sound of the wind don't have to be, but God made them so just to please himself. You have this book and this work you do is beautiful just to please God. What could be lovelier to spend your day in a beautiful chant and twisting ink into incredible fancies to give God pleasure? I'm glad. God gives so much. And for us all, you will give something great in return, she said. It is not a fanciful life. Bending over the page for hours is hard labor. When I am laboring for God, it's as if my sins are cast aside for a while and I forget myself. We commit a hundred failures a day, but for a few perfect hours, all that is forgotten. And I am not myself, weak and ashamed, but an instrument of something greater, and I touch the passion of the saints. She said, So, in laboring for your creation, it is what becomes of you that is the real offering. At the time I took little notice of that remark, but it came back to me long after. For a while I forgot it, because just then Dermot entered, and a weight fell on my shoulders. Good evening, Canachtoch. He sat and turned away from me. Blessings. You made good time. They've improved the road through the waste. So you have your parchment? Yes. I slid the parchment into my bag, my hands clammy with sweat. Uncle Tach has been making a fine page of scribing, Deirdre said. Dermot looked grim. Where is Una? Making a pair of shoes with Maeve. Deidre answered. Go to her. 
I won't forget Daedra's face, cowed and surprised at his coldness. She hesitated as she stood, reaching toward me. I touched her hand, but just barely. We didn't embrace. We didn't say goodbye. She left. Dermot cut a piece of horseradish from the table and chewed it. Una always finds a way that everything is right and as it should be. After a while, that is wearying. Sometimes things are not right, and not as they should be. She says everything happens for a reason. Yes, and sometimes a bad reason. If you're angry with me, repudiate me to my face. Dermot looked at me with a disdain that cut me to my core. You must do what you must do, was all he said. Is our friendship over now? It makes no difference. You have left us never to return. If I were not a priest, I would curse your journey. But I will ask God to pardon my ill will. I think your journey is cursed in any event, as you have cursed us with your desire, for I think it is not a holy cause you seek, but you are proud. I picked up the leather bag, slid my scribing tools into it, and took some cheese and a loaf of bread. I am gone. Tell Una and Deirdre I love them. If you wish. I waited a moment for some last word of goodbye, but he sat back in his chair, chewing on the horseradish, and then turned to bank the fire. I went outside and headed up the path across the footbridge to the top of the hill, stood under the cross, and looked back. In the twilight, the houses were swallowed in shadow. Smoke hovered over the thatched roofs, ghost-like and dreamy, smoke and shadow. The sun set behind the hill opposite, and as it sank, the farm melted into the dark. There was a pause of absolute darkness, and I could go nowhere. I stood still, waiting, while the stars in heaven pulled my gaze upward, away from the farm that was no longer mine. The sky behind me lightened, and I turned toward the full rising moon. Now I could see. I walked toward the moon. Chapter 5 The Wild Boy When I reached the edge of the woods, I lay down to spend the night. At sunrise, I thought about going back, saying goodbye to Una and Deirdre, and making some peace with Dermot. But what words could there be? If it was ended, it was ended. I was entering the vow of the monastery, and my family was cut off. I would be a good monk and pray for my family. There was no way to mend things with Dermot. Going back might only bring a repetition of the previous night, more bitterness and tears. That thought brought me to my feet, walking into the woods. But as I went, I felt the weight of knowing it was wrong to leave this way, 
Wrong not to hold Una and Dager one last time. And the uneven path, riddled with roots and strewn with acorns, hindered my feet. As I walked into the woods, I recalled Maeve's speech about breaking with the past. I was returning to the place of my early youth. Returning, I had the dual sensation, that I was walking both back into my past and ahead into the future, and I started to feel disoriented. My legs felt uncertain, as if trying to step upward, but the path went down, and trying to step downward, but the path went up. I stopped. My breathing labored as if I'd been running. Walking had been noisy, and now that I had stopped, all was silent. Watch over me, I whispered. I set off again more quickly, and ceased thinking about the past and future. The thick leaves underfoot obscured the narrow way, and I went forward with difficulty. I had a sensation of being followed, and I stopped several times. The rustle of the leaves seemed to stop one step after mine. A fog rose. The trees wavered in the mist. Suddenly, I thought I glimpsed someone moving ahead. Hello, I called, hurrying. Someone small darted between the trees and disappeared again. I came upon a cave below a rocky outcropping. It was partly man-made, some old foundation of a ruin within it. There were charred twigs in a fire pit and some bones, but no other indication of human habitation. I set off, at first sure of the path, but the mist rose again. Again I heard the rustle of steps and saw movement. Hello! Can you help me? I called. After a while I stopped, and my heart skipped a beat as the cave entrance yawned before me. I had walked in a circle. The boy I was following came out from the cave and looked straight at me. He wore skins and furs, and his hair was long and wild. One blue eye and one brown eye looked fearfully, and he held onto the shaft of the knife sheathed in his belt. Who are you? I asked. Boy! His mouth was twisted. Do you have a name? He backed away. Don't be afraid. I've lost my way in the fog. Can you show me the way? The boy began to bark and howl and wave the knife. I knelt to the boy's level. He picked up a stone and threw it at me, hitting my shoulder. I took out a loaf of bread and held it toward him. The boy sniffed. He inched forward, his knife raised. Peace to you, boy. In one motion, the boy set the loaf between his teeth, slashed me across the back of the hand, swept up the bag, and ran. 
I stumbled to my feet and ran after him. That's mine! Stop! I ran hard, blood spattering from my hand, until I slipped on the leaves and fell. The wood was silent. The boy was gone with my precious parchment of writing. Now I was off the path. I headed where I thought the boy had gone. I peered at the ground, trying to tell where the leaves were disturbed. On the ground lay the white slender quill pen. Crystals of gum Arabic were scattered on the leaves. Please, just the parchment, God, I whispered. My heart leapt as I found the leather bag. But the bag was empty. I crushed the bag in my fist with a cry. The wood slid down a bank of a stream where I knelt and drank water from my cupped hand. The cut stung. It was growing dark. I listened for some sound of the boy, but there was only an eerie bird song, like a low human whistle that repeated twice and stopped. Perhaps the boy belonged to some nearby farm. I decided to walk up the stream to try to find his family. I rose, stiff and sore, and started to walk up the stream. After an hour, I came to a stone wall and a bright open field, purple and gold in the late sun, the sky above indigo, and in the distance were some small white houses and a barn. I headed for the first little house. A young woman of about sixteen with red hair opened the door when I knocked. She held a baby in her arms. I'm a traveller, a monk, on my way to Iona, I told her. Can I sleep in your barn? She closed the door, and I heard women's voices. Then the door opened, and she let me in. An old woman stirred a pot on the fire that smelled wonderful. The young woman lay the baby in its crib, and it kicked its legs, laughing. So, you are a monk, the old woman asked, as she ladled out a bowl of stew. Oh, thank you. This is very fine, I ate hungrily. Yes, I am going to complete a vow I made as a child. It was my desire to scribe a great gospel, a beautiful book. You're brave to travel alone, and so late in the year, the girl said. I met someone even braver, a boy living alone in the woods, fending for himself. The girl gasped, and the woman put her hand on her daughter's shoulder. You saw him? Yes. It seems very sad for such a young boy to live as a hermit. That was no boy, the woman said. That was the changeling. He appears in the fog, and he steals here and there. Sometimes he's a fox, sometimes he's a crow. 
I think he was just a poor lost boy. But he took something of mine. The woman shook her head. It was a lost soul, for sure. He is the changeling of the wood. I was hoping to find him again and get back what he took. The woman's eyes widened and she waved her spoon. I would never venture more than a few yards into that wood, and the saints protect me from ever seeing that lost soul. The bread turned dry in my mouth. There would be no help to find my parchment. There is no chance of finding him? My voice sounded distant in my ears. The room was darkening in the setting sun. Surely not now, with night coming on. She strained a cup of ale for me. But truly, you should not go, even in the daylight. I'm sorry if he took something valuable. He is a cursed boy, and I would not seek him. Is it something we could help you replace? I shook my head. Thank you. No, it was too valuable. We'll pray this is not some bad omen, the old woman said. I slept on the floor that night. In the darkness, I heard a light rain falling outside. I lay awake a long time. The next morning, they fed me porridge and gave me some loaves to take. They walked me across the field. I looked back at the houses and the wood beyond it. I wanted to go back into the wood, thinking I could find the cave again, and maybe the parchment would be there. My hosts prayed for my journey. It would look foolish to go back in the opposite direction. There was no chance of finding the parchment. To be continued.